Welcome to The Savvy Sauce, where we have practical chats for intentional living. I'm your host, Laura Duggar, and I'm so glad you're here. Today's message is not intended for little ears. We'll be discussing some adult themes, and I want you to be aware before you listen to this message. Lehman Property Management Company has the apartment you will be able to call home with over 1,600 apartment units available in central Illinois. Visit them today at MidwestShelters.com or visit them on Facebook. A book recently came out titled Aftershock, Overcoming His Secret Life with Pornography, A Plan for Recovery by Joanne Condy with Jeremy Keaton. Joanne had to retire earlier than desired due to health concerns, which limit her greatly at this time. But I'm so grateful Jeremy made himself available to teach us more about this devastating topic, which includes other actions along the spectrum of sexual sin, such as physical infidelity. He approaches this conversation with humility, and I pray you are full of hope after concluding this discussion. Our conversation is intended to offer compassionate care for both the husband and the wife. Here's our chat. Welcome to the Savvy Sauce, Jeremy. Good to be with you and with your audience. Just great to sit down and talk about um, this book and, and all the important topics in it. Yes, I am so grateful for your work in this space. And so what is it that led you into this vocation where you primarily counsel men on topics related to healthy sexuality, infidelity, and pornography addiction? Well, Laura, I didn't exactly plan my steps, but the scripture makes clear in that God orders our steps. And that's, that's who I give credit for why I'm doing what I'm doing. Just a series of unplanned events where beginning in my graduate training as a marriage and family therapist, my one of my professors asked me to serve on a project dealing with pornography use, got familiar with the topic there, and then after my grad school years came to focus on the family, and I had to get a counseling license. And as you know, you have to collect hours and get exposure to topics, and the topics I kept getting exposed to had to deal with sexuality. I uh, worked with uh, a psychologist under him who counsels sex offenders and people coming to terms with sexual brokenness, and I began to see how so much pain can happen around our sexuality, but so much change and so much goodness can come when it's dealt with and dealt with well. And also, even in my own story, even though I haven't gone through sexual addiction, that's not exactly my story, Laura, what I, what I do recognize is that except for the grace of God— there go I. I really identify with and root for and have a heart for the men in recovery and recognize that if it wasn't except for just a turn or two in the road and in my story, I could be overcoming addiction. And my my clients, the people I've worked with, the couples I've worked with, really, in many ways, I admire them so much. They've become a type of hero to watch the recovery process and to see God being the hero in their story, all this kept drawing me into this area of sexual health and recovery of sexual health. So 
it's not exactly a plan I had set out, but God just put one stepping stone in front of another, and I'm really, really grateful to be serving in these sacred places. And God has blessed me and helped me be a stronger man of integrity as I work with men gaining their integrity. So I'm just really grateful. And like you said, this topic does affect husbands and wives because either one can use pornography or choose to act out with sexual sin in other ways, such as having an affair. But for the purposes of our conversation today, we're going to focus on wives whose husbands struggle with sexual sin in marriage. So Jeremy, can you help us understand why pornography is so addicting? Well, first of all, healthy sexuality is good. Healthy sexuality is so powerful. We're made in God's image. And so anything around sexuality is actually sacred. And that's why God's plan protects and defines sexuality in such specific ways. Its potential for good also has the opposite, though. It's a place where a lot of pain and a lot of um, even harm to our own uh, minds as well as brain, our neurochemistry, can happen. It can become addictive. I like to use the analogy of fire in the fireplace, Laura. Think of fire when it's in its place and it's built inside the fireplace of your home. It's warm. It warms you. It's beautiful. It serves a purpose. Um, it's even uh, quaint and romantic. Fire in the fireplace is is great. Yet, if you take that same element, you take that same fire, and you build it just a few feet over out of the fireplace, maybe on the carpet or outside of its place, it creates smoke. It creates damage to the floor. It can spread to all kinds of places that you didn't actually mean it to spread to, and then you have a home burning. This is a lot like the sexuality piece in our lives. It is meant to be in its place and so wonderful and purposeful when it is. And yet outside of its place, there is kind of a, a ravaging, burning, and harmful process that happens. We know that our bodies and our brains are involved um, with our sexuality. Even the scripture says when you sin sexually, you're sinning against your own body. W what does that mean? What, you know, you're sinning against your own body. I think the, the neuroscience of today, what we know from, from brain scans and what we know about neurochemicals, we can see probably what the scripture was talking about is that there is actually a addictive process and a damaging to the brain, just like substance, like heroin or alcohol, that there is a, an addictive process that can happen with sexuality. And we know that now. That's why pornography is so addicting. It deals with our sacred sexuality and our bodies. That is so helpful to hear that analogy. And even one of your chapter titles states this question in another way because it's entitled, Why Does He Do What He Does? 
And this is probably one of the biggest questions for women if their husband is struggling with this is just why. Mm. So are there any common root issues that you often see as correlated with men seeking pornography or habitually using pornography? Yeah. Well, obviously the first question behind the question for many wives, and I just want to say this for the listeners out there, is am I not good enough? Did I cause this to happen? Or if I was sexy enough or or enough for him, wouldn't he not do this? That's sometimes the fear or the, the insecurity and the question behind the question of why does he do what he does. So I'd like to just even start there by saying when pornography becomes a habit or an addiction, a full-blown addiction, it is not the other person's fault. We don't cause someone to use pornography. Yes, the marriage can have an environment. The system of the marriage can have an environment that that may have some ripeness for this to occur or some ways that play in the bigger context. But that's very different than causing somebody to do something that doesn't have integrity. We're all responsible for our own actions individually and our integrity in how we face challenging situations. The other thing behind this is where did it come from at its very root? And you mentioned, are there roots? Everybody's roots to this are a little different. First of all, just commonly speaking, we're made to be sexually interested. We're sexual beings. We're made in God's image, male and female. Our sexuality is at the core of us as male and female, and sex is supposed to be interesting. It's something that we have to learn to steward. So on that level, it's just because we're human, we're drawn to the possibility of sexual temptation. But at a deeper level, when it becomes addictive and it becomes a coping mechanism, Usually, there are things in a man's story that are deeper. Early exposure, early trauma, early exposure to to the pornography or some sexually acting out. A lot of times we will find in a man's story, when we take the full sexual history, that there is some significant event or events that play a role in revisiting this type of behavior and then it growing. You know, Pornography has become the new sex education, unfortunately, with the accessibility today. So many times men have gotten an early education from pornography, I should say a miseducation, and they're beginning to repeat that or rehearse that and return to that because of what it has brought them through the years. Another area is what I refer to, my colleague and I, Joanne Condi, who authored this book, we refer to intimacy disorder. There's another route where I am not being intimate and safe. I don't have the skills for that as a vulnerability in a face-to-face relationship. And so I'm escaping and getting false intimacy from pornography. So that lack of connection, it may be that You know, I I desire that, I hunger for that, but I am short-circuiting my growth emotionally, and pornography is a piece of that. It's easier to invest in pornography than it is all that comes up emotionally for me when I invest in a real connection. So early exposure, 
and then the intimacy disorder or the lack of connection piece. There's also unfortunate stories of abuse or emotional neglect where either there's been some sexual abuse or there's been some emotional neglect and a young person young adult even has learned to use the pornography to numb things out and there's actually a high that happens right from this and and just like alcohol or another substance it becomes a form of escape from the pain um, or blocking out things from abuse and neglect and then just purely accessibility i mean we're flooded right laura we're flooded in in the marketplace with sexualized content that kind of normalizes the idea that sex is an object to be manipulated, people are objects to be manipulated, and it's the cultural air we breathe with marketing and accessibility in the internet. So you put all those things in the mix, uh, men often, if they're addicted, have some combination of these factors I'm talking about here at, at the root. So it's why it's so important to be with a counselor Go deep into the roots, because if these are the roots, Laura, you're not going to get better or recover simply by trying hard and just praying harder and and not looking at the roots. There are things that feed and drive this unresolved issues, skills of emotional connection. When you can begin to excavate those and really look at those in a safe place, then you can have recovery. But if you simply say, I feel bad about doing this, I want to try harder, try harder. I don't want this, and I'm just going to keep trying super hard not to do this. It never works in a sustainable way. And that's why a husband and wife going into this story, as painful as it is, can find hope. There is change when you get to the roots. So I'm glad you're asking why. It's a normal question. It's not your fault. It's not the the wife's fault, but there are things underneath it. Wow. You articulate that so well. And I think what it does is gives us compassion for the person who may be struggling with this. And from your years of experience, what kind of stories have you encountered as it relates to wives finding out about their husband's secret sin? Yeah, these can be so challenging and so hard. And the stories of it coming to light kind of have three large categories. The the first is the most positive, if you will, if you can think of it as positive, is when there's a, a voluntary admission where somebody says, it's hard, but I, I need to share this with you. I see it often even in people that are trying to do very well in premarital counseling, and they're, they're being thorough, and they're maybe in premarital counseling, and they have a good counselor who's not going to gloss over this, is going to ask the questions about sexual history as they do their premarital counseling. And it comes out through some avenue where it's it's prompted, but it's voluntary. And the prognosis for that is, is great. That's obviously better. It still hurts, and there's still a pausing and some pain in the relationship. And hopefully some help to really tell the full story and and get to the roots of that. I I do see that. But then there's the second category is where the wife finds it through the Internet, finds it through something on the cell phone, an email that comes in because of a junk mail list that – an email address got exposed to, and and now these suspicious things are happening, and she digs and she finds information. 
maybe even catches an individual, you know, in the middle of the night playing what she thought was video games. And then it's actually she looks over the shoulder of her husband and it's pornography. Um, You know, we have stories in our book, Aftershock, of different women's stories that people will identify with. And they feel embarrassing and they feel heavy. And the wife will even take on a sense of shame and embarrassment about it. And these are hard stories. I mean, that category two of finding it. Category three, even heavier. It's uh, some major consequence has occurred. The husband comes home and says he's been fired from his job or someone in ministry is released because of a scandal. And then all of a sudden there's some major consequence that's affecting the family, the marriage. Maybe the pornography has passed over into an actual relationship and she is contacted by the disgruntled partner you know, that, that he was having an affair with. These are so painful. And some people in the audience are, are even shaking their head now because they've, they've been touched by something like that personally. And I'm, I'm so sorry for that pain. And yet that moment of crisis, that moment of crisis in sending the family and the wife um, and even the husband into aftershock is the opportunity to really, really reach out for God's redemption. As low and as hard as life can get, that is also where the light will shine the brightest. And so these are the types of stories and the categories of uh, how this comes out. I think it's better when there is a willing admission up front and, and a willingness to work on it. But in any case, there's recovery hope for all three of these categories when that crash happens. I love that you keep pointing it back to the hope available. And now a brief message from our sponsor. With over 1,600 apartment units available and with every price range covered, you will have plenty of options when you rent through Lehman Property Management Company. They have townhomes, duplexes, studios, and garden-style options located in many areas throughout Pekin. In Peoria, a historic downtown location and apartments adjacent to the OSF Medical Center provide excellent choices. Check out their brand new luxury property in Peoria Heights overlooking the boutique shops and fine dining on Prospect. And in Morton, they offer a variety of apartment homes with garages, a hot downtown location, and now a brand new high-end complex near Idlewood Park. Their beautiful, spacious apartments with private garages in a quiet but convenient location await you in Washington. And if you're looking in Canton, don't miss Village Square Apartments. Stop by their website at midwestshelters.com. Regardless of how a spouse discovers this, this discovery is likely disorienting. So I want to specifically walk couples through ideas of how to proceed from this point forward. So why do you recommend that the first step is to find a licensed professional counselor who specializes in treating sexual addictions? Yes. This is so disorienting. It is such an offense to the inner part of us, the most tender part of us, and it's also so shameful for the man. If you try to simply do self-help through this, there's going to be all kinds of blind spots, all kinds of 
mistakes and actually sometimes kind of sweeping certain issues under the rug that will only resurface six months, two years, five years later with really a worse and more devastating type of impact. So what we recommend through Focus on the Family, where I am, what my co-author Joanne Condi and I are recommending in this book is that you don't go it alone. Someone who's objective, who has experience, that can slow you down from all of the tumult, all of the emotions that are just, of course, going to be rushing over you, especially a wife. She will be in aftershock, as the book says, where she doesn't know exactly what next step to take. Sometimes wives are at a place where they are in the fight mode, okay, where they're so angry and rightly so that they are in the fight mode trying to protect their hearts and their lives, or they can be in flight mode, fight, flight, or freeze is where I'm going here, Laura. They can be in flight mode, which is, I'm just going to run away from this. This is too much. This is too painful. I'm going to avoid it. And they can go that route, a passive route or a backing away route, or freeze. They can be in freeze mode. It can short circuit and create a trauma. Um, There is such a thing as betrayal trauma where you are frozen. You may not be feeling anything. You might even be numb and you just go into a frozen mode, which isn't obviously productive either. So you're going to need help with fight, flight, or freeze wherever you are as a wife to hopefully deal with that in your emotions in a way that get you into self-care and then get you into the assertive mode. It's a planful mode that I am I'm going to assert an intervention. I'm not going to be overly aggressive and destructive. I'm not going to be overly passive or in denial. I'm going to be assertive with a plan and some boundaries. To get there, to dial that in and have that balance, you really need some guidance and deserve some guidance during this time of pain that a wife is in. For the husband, the same thing all over the map with with deep degrees of shame for many men, Christian men in this. Uh, They just want to hide a lot of self-hatred, or for some men, of course, there can be a continued denial where there needs to be some boundaries drawn so that they find the courage to step into the recovery needed. So with all this swirling, it's just very important that you go to the roots and you don't just try harder and pray harder. Many Christians have a very strong spiritual sense, and that's good, but We're made body, mind, and spirit, and so sometimes Christians will just try to pray it away, memorize more scripture, and you've got to remember that recovery is a three-legged stool, body, mind, or your psychology, and your spirit. So somebody that can help you with all three legs of that stool, and self-help, it's hard to keep your eye on the ball and be able to be insightful enough to recover in all three areas, body, mind, and spirit, and relationally in the marriage. Please reach out for help. I could not agree more with what you're saying, and you make it feel approachable, I think, for someone listening that that could be their next step. And now can you explain the phases that you and Joanne write about, which are the phases of pre-shock, shock, and aftershock? You know, we all 
our living life, you know, with families and, and kids oftentimes or uh, you're, maybe you're newlyweds and you're, you're just living forward and you don't have kids yet, but you're, you're just doing life. That's pre-shock. You're just doing life and you're going along and all of a sudden there's some event. And I talked earlier about whether it's an admission or finding it out or some major consequence, but there's some event, there's some intrusion and boom, all of a sudden there's a jolt to your system where you thought you were safe or where you thought you had a plan and everything was okay in terms of your, your life and your sexual fidelity. The event is the shock. And it, it sends all kinds of emotions and disturbance through. So you're moving from doing life pre-shock to shock. And then after shock, again, is where you go into fight, flight, or freeze. You don't know whether to turn left or right, or you make some attempt after the pain, but it's not a productive attempt. You may get super angry, or you may get super passive, but in aftershock, that's where you need to pick up with the guidance. In aftershock, you're just trying to figure out how to survive this violation, really. Your system may not even be thinking through it consciously, but because we, we experience such a pain and a trauma, your, your system is designed to survive. So you go into survival mode. And it's a really precarious time. It's a time where if, if you don't have some methodical, planful steps, sometimes more damage can actually be stacked on top of this damage. And then the enemy of our souls really starts dabbling even more to create a lack of hope. And the big D word, divorce, just starts being used because you see no other path. So aftershock is where you have an opportunity, but also a major threat to the marriage. It's an opera threat, if you will. It's the greatest time of opportunity, but also the greatest time of threat in terms of believing there's no hope. And aftershock is the period of time where your marriage hangs in the balance, and intervention can and should happen during aftershock, but many times it won't for some people. And then this new system of sexual pain and sexual disappointment gets codified as the new rules of the marriage. This aftershock becomes your legacy, and you limp along with it, or you become so disillusioned that you head to divorce. If you'll get help in the aftershock, it actually is an opportunity for something I call biblical proportion restoration. You can have the hope when you intervene on this to be restored to even a double portion of better of what you had before. And that's where I get excited, Laura, is when we, we look at the character of God. When he comes into the mess, when he's born into the manger, right, into the manure, he brings his redemption. And that's where the opportunity is when people in their pain will invite Jesus into the mess and walk with a Christian counselor towards recovery. That is beautiful. And Jeremy, will you just vision cast for someone what that double portion could look like? Zechariah 9, 11 and 12 is one place where we see God's character. And there's several other places where biblical restoration is is referenced in places where you see this character of God do 
to restore in even better measure or larger measure than what was there before. I'll read part of Zechariah 9, 11 and 12 here. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. See, this is, this is the way God works with his chosen people. And if you're his, you're chosen. And he never leaves us. He never forsakes us. And he, yes, comes into our manure. That's what the manger story is is about at Christmas, right? He comes into the mess. Isaiah 61, 7. Instead of your shame, there will be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. Job 42, 10. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. I am laying this out to husbands and wives because it is God's character to redeem. But there are some boundaries and some actions and some pathway of transformation that we have to choose. I want to point out God's character in this hope. But I also want to point out that God calls us to do the work with him. And it's not a magic wand overnight. Our sexual history and our sexual patterns and our marital relationship is too important for him to simply sprinkle dust on and create a magic miracle. We want that magic wand. What he does is he comes in and he transforms our character and he gives us new ways of relating vulnerably to one another. And then out of that new vulnerability and understanding intimately each other's story and each other's pain, and yes, it's a mess to go through this, but once you get to that place after a good long time in recovery, right, this grows over time, you have a stronger marriage than you had before, potentially because you have intimacy. Pornography is false intimacy, and the antidote is true intimacy. It's work to get there. It's scary to get there when you're working through intimacy issues. But when you get there, your marriage is more protected than it was before because you have a light shined in all the corners and there's not as much opportunity for mold and dank and yucky stuff to grow because you've cleaned it out and you're living life vulnerably together. That is a journey, Laura. And people may be hearing this, and if they're at the beginning of recovery, they're thinking, there's no way. I have no hope for that. I've seen it happen with time and investment. And I think it's so helpful to begin with that, to know what that vision could look like. But then as we back it up, what are a few practical steps in this long process toward recovery? Yeah, patience and learning new skills. So we... We have a phrase, and if, if your readers will pick up the book and kind of walk through um, a preview of what good recovery looks like, they'll notice that uh, wives being in a support situation, learning self-care for her pain, but most significantly that a boundary is drawn and a husband is invited to recovery and invited to take visible actions with other men. Okay, And so we have this phrase – um, that 
kind of stark, but we say no group, no recovery. What we're really saying there is if you don't engage your own soul and heart with other people on the journey, then you have these kind of temporary effort-based solutions to sobriety, to staying away from using pornography, that will eventually, you won't be strong enough to maintain. But if you learn the new skills of relating, which you do in group counseling, in a group support group, then you begin to birth this new man inside of you that can show up differently in your marriage with your emotions, with your needs, speak for them in ways that have integrity and take care of your wife's heart in such a way that has integrity and also invites her into a safe place with you. That's what you learn through a well-led men's recovery group and wives likewise in their support groups and then in couples counseling coming together when appropriate and merging the traffic between those two things. So patience to invest in this and not to think that you can read one book and put a few tips in place, techniques, behavioral change, maybe an internet filter, and you're good. So that's practically what you're looking at is, yes, you need to put some boundaries in place. You need to find ways to stay away from the temptation. And yes, you will need some internet filters or giving up social media accounts and, you know, and have some accountability. But if you only stop at that behavioral level, you're going to only have a temporary behavioral change. You won't have that vision of transformation that I'm talking about. So one of the practical things is bring your story into the light with a group, both the wives and the husband, with this kind of holistic recovery support. If you're enjoying these episodes and want to keep the conversation going, or if you want to see and learn more about our guests, or if you just want to check out if we're offering any current giveaways, make sure you stop by our social media pages on Facebook and Instagram at The Savvy Sauce. You've mentioned a few times the self-care part for the wife. And so how would you advise women to care for themselves in the midst of finding out about their husband's sexual sin? Well, the best thing is to breathe deeply. Pause. Breathe deeply. Find a trusted, safe place with a person, with a counselor, or with someone you know that you have confidentiality, and just let your emotions be safely expressed there. You may need to cry. You may need to shout. You may need to bang on the table. But get to a contained, safe place to do that with someone you trust. Obviously, the Holy Spirit, your friendship with the Father in heaven is a safe place. And a journal. Grab a journal and begin to grapple with those emotions. As you get help with those emotions, you're going to need to make some decisions of what to do with those. But before you even start trying to come up with a plan, you need to remember to put your oxygen mask on every day. You know that old saying, Laura, when we all get on an airplane and they tell us, you know, should the cabin lose pressure, please put your oxygen mask on first before assisting the person beside you. Keep your oxygen mask on. You're not of service to 
the possibility of your husband's recovery or to your children or to your employer if you don't learn how to breathe every day. And so just some practical things, I mean, just to get very pragmatic, is ask yourself, what fills up my cup? What gives me energy to face the needs today? And it may mean that some wives are just not in some good habits that are good all the time. Like, do I have 10 or 20 minutes to myself in every day scheduled for a mental emotional break? Do I go for walks if I need to in the sunshine? Do I have a weekly rhythm uh, of some kind that that fills my cup up? When I say fills my cup is everybody's got a different love language, if you will, a, a different language of what gives them energy. For some people, it's being alone if they're an introvert and time alone. For some, it is a conversation with one or two people and, and making sure you're getting out of your isolation. And if you're an extrovert and you have those safe people you're interacting with, maybe maybe you need to find a way in the budget or with your church group to, to hire some babysitting and make sure you're getting out at least two to three times a week for a walk or for exercise or quiet time with God. How are you doing at eating and nutrition? So even just valuing yourself at a level that's not selfish, okay, but it's self-care to say I'm going to pamper myself in a way that helps me actually be a better servant to myself and my family. Again, not selfish, not self-indulgent, not escaping, not checking out, but checking in with yourself. That's self-care. And many wives are going to have every bit of their ability and margin completely on edge anyway, and then eaten up even more. They're going to feel this deficit of energy and of sanity. So learning self-care right now during aftershock and as you go into recovery is going to be a major emphasis and skill. But there are also some mindsets, just some mindsets of self-care that we highlight in the book I'll just mention a few of them here. These are mindsets of self-worth. These are mindsets that help you be assertive rather than passive. Develop a support group. Meet regularly with them. Determine in your heart that you are worth investing in what it takes to persevere and to deal with this pain. That might mean counseling and journaling. Not just praying, but praying and acting, writing things out, sharing your emotions with trusted people that you're journaling about, taking it before God. Also, intentionally remembering the truth. You've got to remember to stand firm with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, as Ephesians 6.14 says. So lots of rehearsing of what's, what is actually true about me, about God's character. And then avoiding some repetitive cycles where you have a mindset where I have to fix it, and you're maybe you're you're begging or you're coaxing this other individual to get into recovery. You really want to have a mindset that says I can't control the other person; I can only draw a boundary. So there's a mindset of not letting yourself be devalued through this begging and chasing the other person down, but really just drawing boundaries, and then a balanced mindset where you're caring for yourself, but you're also praying for and caring for the well-being of your husband while you're still drawing those boundaries. Having this, these kinds of mindsets 
around how you think about yourself and your role are, are some of the mental postures for good self-care and good self-respect and realizing that you have self-worth, which is often challenged during aftershock. Your self-worth can sometimes really take a dip. And I appreciate that you clarify there is a difference between self-care and being selfish. Yes. But I'm just thinking of the woman who it's feeling really foggy right now and she's not sure which camp she's in. Could you share even how we would know when we're moving into the selfish category or anything else you could elaborate on to differentiate the two? Mm -hmm. Self-care is helping me be a better me for my calling and my service to others and to myself because I'm important and valuable to God. I'm God's daughter too. Self-care fills up my cup so that I can pour that out. It's akin to what Jesus did when he stepped away from the crowds in order to be tuned in to the voice of the Spirit. This is Christian self-care. Selfish or escapism could be something like avoiding. When you check out and you show back up, you're, you're more shameful and depleted and not more equipped to deal with the problem than before because you've simply checked out. A lot of times, selfishness or checking out, whether it's a husband or a wife, is done with some level of shame or secrecy. It, it doesn't have a sense of integrity. It doesn't have a sense of filling up your cup. It kind of looks like dipping your hand in the cookie jar and trying to get bites without anybody seeing. But there's a, a lack of wholeness to that. There's a, a stealing away. Self-care is about increasing your integrity. And selfishness is merely, sometimes, if we really will look inside, it can, can get a little petty or childish. Usually, I want you to know, Laura, I don't see situations too frequently where, in this scenario, where wives are um, somehow doing a lot of uh, selfish self-care. Many times, they're just doing no self-care, and they need help to understand that they're valuable enough to do self-care in a way that protects and guards and builds up their hearts. That's usually where the deficit is in, in this. Thank you for that, because I think that is definitely a place where the enemy can get in and swap those words for the female and tell her that any form of self-care is selfish. Hey friends, this conversation is so important that we didn't want to limit our time together. We ended up chatting a lot longer than we originally intended. So we're going to stop here for today and invite you back tomorrow when we get to finish this conversation. I hope you join us tomorrow for more hope and actionable steps as you learn how to pursue healing. One more thing before you go. Have you heard the term gospel before? It simply means good news, and I want to share the best news with you. But it starts with the bad news. Every single one of us were born sinners, and God is perfect and holy, so He cannot be in the presence of sin. Therefore, we're separated from Him. This means there's absolutely no chance we can make it to heaven on our own. So for you and for me, it means we deserve death, and we can never pay back the sacrifice we owe to be saved. We need a Savior. 
But God loved us so much, He made a way for His only Son to willingly die in our place as the perfect substitute. This gives us hope of life forever in right relationship with Him. That is good news. Jesus lived the perfect life we could never live and died in our place for our sin. This was God's plan to make a way to reconcile with us so that God can look at us and see Jesus. We can be covered and justified through the work Jesus finished if we choose to receive what he has done for us. Romans 10:9 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to take our place. I pray someone today, right now, is touched and chooses to turn their life over to you. Will you clearly guide them and help them take their next step in faith to declare you as Lord of their life? We trust you to work and change the lives now for eternity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you prayed that prayer, you are declaring him for me, so me for him. You get the opportunity to live your life for him. At this podcast, we are called Savvy for a reason. We want to give you practical tools to implement the knowledge you have learned. So you're ready to get started? First, tell someone. Say it out loud. Get a Bible. The first day I made this decision, my parents took me to Barnes & Noble to get the Quest NIV Bible, and I love it. Start by reading the book of John. Get connected locally, which basically means just tell someone who is part of the church in your community that you made a decision to follow Christ. I'm assuming they will be thrilled to talk with you about further steps, such as going to church and getting connected to other believers to encourage you. We want to celebrate with you too, so feel free to leave a comment for us if you made a decision for Christ. We also have show notes included where you can read scripture that describes this process. Finally, be encouraged. Luke 15.10 says, In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The heavens are praising with you for your decision today. If you've already received this good news, I pray that you have someone else to share it with today. You are loved, and I look forward to meeting you here next time.